Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome to episode seven of This Is Our Effing Podcast, a Red Sox show with your co-hosts, Sean McAdam and Steve Lyons, a weekly look at the 2021 Boston Red Sox. We welcome you back for another episode. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Steve, let's uh, start the week by talking about the big story around the Red Sox uh, since we did our last episode, and that is a tough week-long stretch for the Red Sox starting rotation. An ERA over eight. They allowed 54 runs, I think it was, in the last, or 53 runs in a uh, in a game span, including 18 runs and incredibly eight homers on Sunday afternoon against the Toronto Blue Jays. Bounce back on Monday night with a great effort from Nathan Avaldi. Red Sox get a walk off win after. Uh, Matt Barnes blows the save in the top of the ninth to the red-hot Vladimir Guerrero Jr. That's a rocket. And the Red Sox are two strikes away from a shutout win, but they come back in the bottom of the inning in a minute. But the struggles of the rotation have really emerged here. And I'm wondering, uh, you know, your theories on why this has happened and uh, maybe what they can do to turn things around. Well, I think my theories kind of stay the same all the time. I mean, obviously you're into the part of the season where guys start to feel a little bit of a dead arm. I mean, it happens uh, yearly. Uh, you, you get this deep into the year, you've made all your starts, you're, you're, you know, you, the Red Sox starters have gotten deeper into games than a lot of starters have, and you start to feel a little bit dead. Um, and then the other thing is what we've been talking about for a couple of weeks now, that 17 game stretch where they're going to play 17 games in 17 days and starting to play against some good teams. And you know, when you play against better teams, it's a lot tougher to win games. You know, they hadn't been scoring that many runs. You know, you look at Devers coming through with the big homer, but um, you know, you, you see not only a difference in how many runs they're giving up, but how many runs they're scoring. And when you don't score runs and you give up a ton, uh, you're you're going to lose some games. How about 13 homers in two ball games? My goodness, that was. <laughs> I mean, the eight was unbelievable, but five the day before, still crazy. So yeah, you're looking at a, a Toronto team that absolutely hammers the ball, and it's amazing. You knew that Vlad Guerrero was eventually going to get hot against the Red Sox. He really hadn't done that much in his career against the right. Red Sox, and you know you were kind of just waiting for that other shoe to fall. Yeah, and, and what a series he had in four games, four home runs, every one of them a titanic shot. Uh, the, the one on Monday night that tied it in the top of the ninth was 453 feet, I believe, cleared everything in left center field. And, um, you know, the funny thing is, until Saturday – the Red Sox had been the only major league team in 2021 not allow as many as three homers in a single game this year. So for the first, I think it was 63 games, they were the only team in baseball that did not give up as many as three homers in one game. And then in the span of 24 hours, they give up 
five in a game to the Blue Jays. That's bad enough. But we get to Sunday, and it's eight homers. So, you know, they blew right past that that uh, that mark after being so good for so long in keeping the ball in the ballpark. And let's face it, given the way that baseball is in 2021, you need to uh, hit homers to win, and you need to limit them from a pitching standpoint to win. The Red Sox had, had done their part pitching-wise until – it just completely fell apart over the span of two days. Law of averages, uh, a hot Blue Jays team, some warm weather at Fenway, however you want to factor it. Uh, when the Red Sox slipped, they really kind of fell down a flight of stairs there for two days. Yeah, I mean, you call a spade a spade, some really bad pitching at that point. I mean, when you look at some of those balls that got hit, you know, they weren't like nasty pitches on the corner that a guy did a great job of hitting. And when you look at some of those home runs, you're talking about balls center, center. And and those balls tend to get hit and hit hard. But, you know, there's an old saying in baseball that if you're going to break a record or if it like, you know, the old thing was if you're going to make an error, let everybody know about it. Don't just <laughs> clank it and then I'll uh, shoot. You know, if you're a shortstop, throw it into the seats. You know, let everybody know you made an error. Get your money's worth. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And the Red Sox certainly did that. I mean, when you think about eight home runs in one game, it's you, you start. I think everyone's looking at each other like, "Are you kidding me? There's no way this could possibly happen." It certainly did, and you know, it's it's not a good thing, no question. And you know, you go through hiccups during the season. The Red Sox have been really, really good all year. Uh, but, you know, sometimes when you're bad, you can be really bad. Yeah, but let's look a little deeper there on perhaps why that's happened. Uh, one of the issues that Alex Cora brought up earlier this week was the fact that the five starters in the rotation, and we're talking, of course, about Nivaldi, Rodriguez, Richards, Veta, and Perez, have been able to make every single start as scheduled since the beginning of the year. That is if you overlook the fact that Erod was supposed to start on opening day and then didn't pitch until I think it was the seventh game of the year. So let's say he missed one turn. Otherwise, all five guys have taken the ball every five days or allowing for a couple of off days, the occasional sixth day with an extra day of rest. They've taken every turn through the first two and a half months. And I think part of the plan that the Red Sox had was to sprinkle in some of the guys, uh, you know, in the minor league system or some spot starts along the way to provide an additional day of rest. Guys like Tanner Houck and Connor Siebold, but also guys like Brian Mata and Thaddeus Ward, uh, arguably the four closest to the big league pitching prospects in the Red Sox system. Well, what happened? After two spot starts that Houck made in April, he has a flexor, a, a tendon flexor issues in his forearm and has been sidelined for more than a month. Connor Siebold has inflammation in the elbow. He's missed more than a month. Brian Mata went down in spring training, tried to restart a throwing program. They decided he needed Tommy John and Ward a few weeks ago suffers the same fate. So that sort of safety net of pitching depth that they had planned in the organization to sprinkle in, give those guys an extra day of recovery along the way, maybe once every two weeks, spot a guy when you have an opportunity, 
that went out the window. And maybe we're seeing these guys kind of hit the wall. Remember, we're past the 60-game stretch now, and that was the length of the season last year. So every one of those guys, and this goes double for Rodriguez, who, of course, missed all of last year. Every one of those guys has already topped his innings uh, total from a year ago, and we're only in mid-June. Yeah, I mean, you know, let me go old school for a minute because I know how the game has changed, right? I mean, guys get many more days off. They baby the players way more than they used to. But at the end of the day, aren't you supposed to make every start, every fifth day? Come on, that's the way the game is played. You're supposed to make 34, 35 starts a season. That's what your job is. You only go out there every fifth day. Ask Oil Camp Boyd if he wanted a day off. Ask Roger Clemens. Did he want to uh, miss a start or sit out a start? Ask Jim Rice if he ever wanted a day. Could you, you think you could get Jim Rice out of the lineup? No, it never happened that way. And believe me, I know I'm sounding like my father and I know the game has changed, but why, why has it changed so much in, in, in the regard of, of health and your ability to make your starts when you're supposed to make it? I already started this show by saying that, yeah, every pitcher goes through a little bit of a dead arm period at this point in the year. And it'd be nice to maybe sprinkle in some of those guys. It would have been nice to have them. They're not around. So you have to obviously make those adjustments, but you got to be able to go through it. You got to, you got to be able to go out there without your best stuff and still be able to be competitive and win games. And so you know, like I said, I understand how the game has changed, but I also got to stand up and say, come on, it's baseball. Go do your job, play the game, take the ball every fifth day and go get the job done. And, you know, and if you can't, then you're just going to rack up a lot of losses for not only yourself and your team. So, you know, we know Alex Cora and we know how he loves to give guys days off. And, you know, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just saying, you know, nut up and do your job. Yeah, look, I, I would ordinarily completely co-sign everything you just said, except for the fact that we knew that there was going to be some difficulty transitioning from the 60-game schedule of 2020 to a more regular 162-game schedule in this year, and that some allowances have to be made for that. I, I'm, I'm not uh, saying that, you know, pitchers shouldn't be able to take the ball every five days and, and make their starts. But the fact of the matter is, is that these guys are kind of building up again after not having to have that kind of workload a year ago and having the luxury of the extra day here or there might have benefited them. Look, it may be no more complicated than, as you cited earlier, guys mislocating on a handful of pitches here in the last week. Uh, you know, the, the eight home run barrage, we, we should, you know, point out most of those were hit off Ryan Weber, a guy who is really not a major league caliber pitcher. He came up to be the human sacrifice for the day in case <laughs> Perez didn't go very long. And that is exactly what happened. He came out after two innings and Weber uh, I, I think Amnesty International is now looking into Sunday afternoon for cruel and unusual <laughs> treatment for Ryan Weber, left out there for five and a third innings and five home runs hit. Um, but the fact of the matter is they didn't pitch well for a week. It may be no more than a little bit of fatigue uh, combined with poor 
location and execution and you do that enough and you know you find yourself in a rut losing some games very quickly yeah let's let's revisit that i mean i i understand exactly what you're saying about the guys they're they've already surpassed their number of innings from last season but you know why do you have to be more tired because you didn't throw as much last year why can't you why couldn't you have been stronger because you had almost an entire season off and I'm sure you were doing something and you were throwing and you had your off season workout program going. Why could you not come back stronger from that instead of us all saying, Oh, you know, they didn't throw last year. They got to be tired. You know, there is a flip side to, to every theory that's out there. And sometimes I, you know, these guys are major league pitchers. Most of them have pitched for a number of years in the big leagues. So maybe their arms would have benefited from, damn near a year off but we we like to jump to oh my gosh they must be tired because they because they didn't throw now that's certainly a valid point but we should look at the opposite side of it too where maybe you should have come in even stronger you should be ready to go and then as far as Weber's concerned (laughs) he's he's a funny guy to me man I I look at him I'm like oh my god you cannot get anybody out with that crap you're throwing up to the plate but he was semi-successful for this team when he got his opportunities. Yeah. And he was always supposed to be the sacrificial lamb. And many times he kind of got it done. But well, it always and, and the funny started. thing is, Steve, I remember him, uh, I, I think, throwing like a three or four hit shutout against, drum roll please, the Toronto Blue Jays <laughs> back in 2019. Uh, yeah. And, a, you know, a great and, game. He's always been Rogers. better when he starts a game. Always. You know, they tried him out of the pen a few times and he got rocked, Uh, you know, and again, I'm not trying to make excuses for him. He had a rough day and he had to wear it. Right. I mean, they just left him out there. It's like, oh, my gosh, help me, Mr. Wizard. And he just got rocked. But, you know, you you, you would have hoped for a better fate for him. He knew why he was there, uh, but he 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 didn't think that he was going to, you know, take it on the chin that badly and then get sent back down. Yeah, and, and uh, designated for assignment, not that I, and, and no disrespect to Weber, I don't think that uh, any scouts looking at video of what he showed on Sunday are going to be quick to advise their general managers to put a claim in. So my guess is within a few days, uh, he'll clear waivers and return to Worcester. Um, it, it is funny to watch a guy, I mean, we're, we're so obsessed now with Velo and seeing guys you know, just completely anonymous guys come out of the bullpen throwing 97, 98, 99, sometimes hitting 100. And then you see Weber come in and the fastball, you know, on a good day is 89 or 90. And, you know, you, you wondered a little bit watching that, whether just the contrast, I mean, bats are, are so sped up now, anticipating uh, 100 degree velocity on fastballs that you wondered if that, that ability to, uh, to kind of downshift and throw 88 was going to throw off hitters' timing. The answer to that question we now know is no. The Toronto Blue Jays had absolutely no difficulty at all timing uh, Ryan Weber's fastball on Sunday. Yeah, um, I think they figured it was it was like five o'clock batting practice time is what it kind of came yeah. down to. But you know, it, it is funny though because you're right. I, today's game is all about the flamethrowers that come in out of the pen, they come in as starters, they're all throwing gas. But I love watching a guy like Weber pitch when he has his good stuff. I the love the problem is there's very little margin for error. He has to right. locate with incredible precision because if he's not pitching to the edges, 
we're going to get games like we saw on Sunday. Yeah. And to me, you know, the Sunday game is not the thing. That's not the fun game to watch. It is when he has his good stuff. When he does have the precision, it's like watching Greg Maddox pitch. Yep. You know, it's like throwing the ball exactly where you want and, and tricking hitters with your 88 mile an hour fastball and just being so good that you're just keeping guys off balance. To me, that's a lot of fun to watch. I mean, you know, take this with a grain of salt, but it doesn't take that much talent to throw the ball hundred miles an hour. You know, if you're, if you have that God given arm where you can do it and anytime you want, you can rear back and throw the ball by somebody. Sure. That's fun to watch for a little while too, but I would much rather see a pitcher have some precision and, and, and do it in a different way. Like challenge guys with your, with your 88 mile an hour fastball and then throw a change up off of that and throw a breaking ball in the corner that fools a guy a little bit. To me, that is so much fun to watch, but you're 100% correct. If you don't have your good stuff, you're going to get your lunch. And, and everybody knows that, but to me, you know, it's sort of like a knuckleball guy, knuckleballer has his good knuckleball going. He, he's going to dazzle. If he doesn't, it's going to get absolutely crushed. And we've right. seen it, that a bunch of times. It's too. one extreme or the other. It doesn't seem like there's a lot of gray area for those guys. Um, that, that they don't have the margin for error because they, they don't have the velocity when they can't spot it where they want. Uh, yeah, I'm just wondering, you know, just for the general public, do, do, do people get more excited to see a guy like Evaldi come in there and, and blow guys away? Or, you know, or like in my day when I would play center field behind Roger Clemens and watch him just like dazzle. I mean, cause Roger was one of those guys that absolutely could blow the ball by you, but also knew exactly where it was going too. That, right. That's when you put tremendous talent, with God-given ability, but I don't know. Sometimes, you know, when I was working for Nelson and doing games, I used to get really excited uh, to potentially watch a guy that you knew couldn't rear back and blow the ball by somebody come out there with this good stuff and win games. To me, you know, the art of pitching. I think that was, and I didn't pitch. You know, I, I don't care about pitchers. The only thing I didn't I knew about pitchers is I couldn't hit them, <laughs> and so <laughs> I, you know, I didn't talk pitching very much, but. It, to me, that that's that's mastery of the game. And, you know, if you've been around the game as long as you and I have, sometimes you're looking for that type of excitement on any given day. Yeah, it, it, there is an artistry to it when you can, uh, you know, pinpoint the ball, throw it exactly where you want and fool hitters with something other than velocity. Um, one of the other theories being thrown around in some circles, uh, the Red Sox struggled, is that this is the result of the uh, of Major League Baseball putting everyone on alert that they are going to step up enforcement of a rule that's been on the book for a long time, which uh, forbids the use of foreign substance on baseballs to uh, to give you additional movement on breaking pitches, uh, maybe additional ride on the fastball up in the zone, uh, and as we're recording this, Steve, we do have some news from Major League Baseball about the memorandum and how that's going to be enforced. We're going to get to that a little bit. There have been some that suggested, well, of course, the Red Sox are now struggling with their rotation because now that uh, baseball is starting to crack down, they're not loading up. And this is the result. Now that they are not able to use illegal means, uh, all these pitchers are revealing themselves to be mediocre or worse, and that's why they got pounded. The problem is the data doesn't back that up. The spin rate on 
uh, for the five starters in the Red Sox rotation shows minimal decrease over the last 10 days since this became a public issue and there was a notice that a crackdown was coming. So um, it, it works well as a conspiracy theory. It doesn't work so well when you look a little closer at the yeah, you know, we need stuff to talk about, right? I mean, <laughs> that's what it kind of comes down to. Yeah. You know, this is weird, too, because obviously Major League Baseball uh, decided that this was a major problem, so they decided to crack down on it. You know, I haven't been on a field for a long time. I haven't really had the ability to talk to a lot of players to say, hey, you know, what is going on with the pitchers? Or even talk to a pitcher. It's like, you know, how much of the stuff do you need to make sure you get a good, good grip on the ball and you can spin it? Um, but you know, Major League Baseball doesn't crack down on issues that nobody cares about. So, you know, this is obviously a, a game-wide issue, and they started worrying about it. But guess what? It's the same for everybody. So if the Red Sox went through a little bad spell and everyone's thinking it's because they can't put pine tar on their fingers to throw their breaking ball better, then, you know, why did they only have one run through nine innings, you know, the, the other day? You right. know, uh, because it was the same for the Toronto pitchers and it's the same for yeah it's the same for all 30 teams which is which to me was the biggest hole in that argument to begin with you mean to tell me that and look I'm not going to sit here and tell you that no member of the Red Sox rotation ever used this that's unlikely to be true uh, given that it is widespread throughout the game I think you could take any one of the 30 starting rotations and find a couple of guys if not more who are loading up with something to aid and abet their pitches. But the Red Sox are the only one stopping and thus suffering the consequences. Yeah, that never made any sense. (laughs) Yeah, you know, and, you know, we talked about it a little bit last week. It's like a lot of the hitters would say, I I would prefer that the pitcher has a good grip on the ball. He's throwing it 100 miles an hour at me. I want to make sure he kind of thinks he knows where it's going, even if it's going to be nastier. Uh, you know, I don't want it off the side of my helmet. I want him to have a good grip. And, you know, you had talked about earlier in the season and late in the season when it's cold. But how about when it's 95 degrees? And yeah, and you're sweating, sweating and you can't down get your it. forearm and your fingers are all wet. And now you can't get a grip on the ball yep. because yep. You're, you're sweating so much. You know, <laughs> I, I'm not sure, but I would, I would bet that if you talk to hitters, they would say, I, I want to make sure he's hanging on to that thing the right way. Yeah, I think that used to be the feeling, Steve. But the problem is that the data shows that hit batsmen are up pretty significantly this year. So, you know, how to explain that? Is is that resulting in so much spin rate that breaking balls are getting away from guys? Well, that's because the Astros are still playing. Well, (laughs) true. (laughs) Um, But, you know, it, it used to be, I, I hear the same thing. Hey, I want to make sure the guy knows where it's going. I think the problem is, is that guys are throwing so hard now. Again, we get back to the velocity that that is far more important to them. The ability to throw 99 is now far more important than controlling where that 99 goes. And so the expectation that you're going to have fewer balls get away from guys um, is actually not the case. And we're seeing more guys get hit. And when the fastballs are coming at 98, 99, that's where the real danger starts. Because it's one thing to take, you know, 91 in the ribs. And it's another thing to be ducking out of 99 up around the shoulders. Yeah. And, you know, it's a bad combination with 
pitchers rearing back and basically throwing it as hard as they can, not necessarily knowing where it's going and hitters that are up there trying to hit the ball out of the park every at bat, you know, so there's, there's a lot less discipline on both sides. You know, I can remember late in ball games and, you know, shoot, I hit 19 career home runs. So I was an idiot hitter when I would go up thinking that I needed to hit a home run and I did it way more often than I should have, but especially late in the game, if we needed, you know, a, a run to tie a game or put us ahead, I'm up there swinging for the trees. And I, was a, I wasn't a good enough hitter to do that. But can you imagine a guy, almost every hitter does that. So there's like a, every at bat almost has this weird sense of urgency for every hitter up there because they, they're thinking they're going to go up there and hit the ball out of the ballpark, which makes them far less disciplined as a hitter. And then you got a guy out there on the mound who wants to throw it hundred miles hitters swinging at pitches that they wouldn't ordinarily do. <laughs> I guess someone's here <laughs> and, you have, and you have pitchers that are swinging as guess. hard as they can. Um, yeah, it, it, it's, it's obviously, you know, it's become power versus power between hitters and pitchers and pitchers. And there, there's less discipline on both sides. As you said, uh, worse control from pitchers on the mound and more swings and less discipline at the plate resulting in strikeout totals going through the roof. Uh, I'm going to switch to one more topic to get to before we wrap up, Steve, and that is um, the, the play of uh, Jaron Duran and Tristan Casas as part of Team USA that successfully qualified for the Olympics a week ago. Uh, on a team that is most that was mostly full of former major leaguers, uh, guys like Todd Frazier, Matt Kemp, um, Logan Forsythe, guys that had, had pretty good major league careers, uh, still wanting a chance to play, maybe a chance to impress some scouts, or maybe just wanting to play for their country. The majority of that roster was made up of uh, established and former major leaguers. But in that mix, um, were two Red Sox prospects, outfielder Jaron Duran and first baseman Tristan Casas. I was able to talk to Mike Sosha, former Angels manager uh, and manager of Team USA, about both, and he just raved about them. When I asked about the comparisons between Casas and Freddie Freeman, uh, two 6'4 left-handed uh, swinging first baseman with really nice swings, uh, Mike said it wasn't fair to... Uh, you know, talk about a guy who hadn't played above double A and compare him to a National League MVP. Fair enough. Then spoke to the Boston Herald in the last day or so and promptly compared Darren Duran to Mike Trout, the best player of the last 20 years. So um, other than the fact that um, I apparently don't have the uh, interviewing technique that I thought I did and wasn't able to elicit that quote from Mike Sosha, um, that's quite a, a boost for both of these guys to hear a guy who, you know, who managed 18 years and played 18 years in the big leagues and managed another 12 or 13 to hear him rave about two of the better prospects in the Red Sox system. Well, it, it certainly bodes well for the system and, and what's coming up. I mean, obviously we got to know Duran a little bit a couple of years ago in spring training and you saw the speed. And at that time he really hadn't developed any power and to me, what, what it is more than anything else is when you watch a development of a player like that and you watch him get better and better, that really excites me as someone who loves the game and, 
And I, you know, I, I hate to keep referring back to me, but I'm the only one I know. And so, you know, I, I believe that I, I kept getting better at a certain point, I guess, but I, I certainly hit a ceiling. Um, when I was at the major league level, I could not get better uh, to be like an everyday player. I was good enough to be a utility guy. I, was, I could catch the ball and I had some skills, but on an everyday basis, I, I wasn't really a, a, a above average player. But you can see a guy like, you know, Duran just, he keeps getting better and better because like three years ago, he was just a guy. Right. And now he's on the he's on the map, like as, as your one of your top prospects and a guy who's being compared to Mike Trout. Come on. I mean, that's that, that is a guy who's absolutely getting better by each passing day. And that's a lot of fun to watch. And, and you know, I, I don't know that that kind of stuff really excites me when you talk about the game and its future. Yeah, it certainly bodes well, as you said, that the Red Sox have two guys who can really be impact players, if not later this year, then certainly by next year when they should have an opportunity to compete for major league jobs. All right, finally, to wrap up, um, today's trivia question. Let's see if you get this, Steve. On Sunday afternoon, Marwin Gonzalez played his seventh position of the season for the Red Sox when he was called in to pitch the eighth inning. And, I might add, uh, threw a 43-mile-an-hour slider and followed that with a 90-mile-an-hour fastball. Now, that is some serious separation. You're talking about going from 43 to 80. But that also marked the seventh position that Marwin Gonzalez had played for the Red Sox this year. Left field, right field, third base, shortstop, second base, first base, and now pitcher. Who was the last member of the Red Sox to play seven different positions in one season? <laughs> well i know i did uh but didn't didn't brock that that, that was indeed you in 1991 how many did brock holt play um well he did he never caught uh and i don't know that he pitched i i think he played um he may have i'm trying to remember if he uh, i know he played first base that was one of the last ones that he hadn't uh, that he hadn't played. I think the problem with Holt is that it didn't happen in the same season. That, uh, it, okay, that, yeah. that he may have played, uh, let's assume that he did pitch at some point, although I don't remember it. He may have played seven, but not in the same season. I know he played all over the infield and at least a couple of outfield spots. Uh, and, and, and let's assume that he pitched, but again, I think the, the fine print is that he didn't do it all in one year, like all-time greats Marwin Gonzalez and Steve yeah, I, th I believe I hold the distinction of playing all nine position, all nine positions and DH in one season, uh, which may have been that that same year. And, uh, and was that was that with the Red Sox or White Sox or? Do you, do yes, with the Red Sox. Huh? Um, I believe 91. I think that was the year. Um, and then, you know, something that. I don't really get credit for, although I credit myself with it because I like to pat myself on the back a lot, is that when I played all nine positions in a game with the White Sox, uh, it was in a game called the Crosstown Classic against the Cubs, which was before the advent of interleague play. Right. That was an exhibition game. Yes, technically an exhibition game, but you yep. can never tell me that. Are you kidding me? It was a baseball <laughs> game. It was in the big leagues. Major we league teams again in a major league ballpark. That's good enough for you. Yeah, it was certainly good enough for me. I was having, you know, it was, it was 1990. I wasn't 
getting an opportunity to play very much. So Jeff Torborg gave me that chance to do it. He used to tell me I would, he would do it in a game after we clinched the division, but we were a crappy team. So we were never going to clinch the division. <laughs> he knew so what he was doing. Opportunity. Yeah. All right. That's going to wrap up episode seven of, uh, of uh, our podcast here. This is our effing podcast, a Red Sox show with your co-hosts, Sean McAdam and Steve Lyons. We ask that you uh, rate and review the show wherever you consume the podcast. Tell your friends, especially those who are Red Sox fans about it. Spread the word. We would appreciate any good positive feedback that you could give. And um, we will see you next week. Steve, we'll talk to you then. All right. Sounds great. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.